welcome to a brand new series, uh, Creatrium, a podcast series from the University of South Wales uh, using the very fine radio studios at the Atrium. Um, and it's all to do with the fact that uh, we're at the Faculty of Creative Industries, full of creative people who have different interpretations of creativity. So my first guest for this uh, brand new series is Professor Joseph Sobol, who's a professor of the George Evans Center for Storytelling, a bit of a mouthful, also known as Geeks, which is probably an uh, easier uh, acronym for it. So Except first, that it refers to people yes. who tear apart chickens for a life <laughs> of livelihood. Different kind of geek, perhaps. Yeah. Thank you very much for uh, joining us for the, for, for the first one uh, of Creatrim. Could you firstly just tell us a, a little bit about you know, who you are and what you're about and how you've ended up here in, in <laughs> Cardiff and Wales, of all places in the world? Well, I uh, have been a storyteller uh, professionally, semi-professionally, vocationally, avocationally, and uh, also as a support to academic work now for 30-something years. Started off as a folklorist and a storyteller and musician around the southeast part of the United States, the Appalachians, and environs, and then went and did some more academic study, wrote a history of the contemporary storytelling movement, which kind of got me a job uh, leading a storytelling master's degree program at East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and I was there for 17 years. So at some point, getting a bit restless, I saw that they were advertising at the George Ewood Evans Center for a new director. Now, I, I had been here in 2009 on sabbatical. I knew the work that was going on here, and I knew the some of the people that were doing it and liked them all very much. So I thought, well, what the heck? I'll throw my hat into that particular ring. And to my immense shock, was actually hired for the job, which so that that meant pulling up stakes in East Tennessee. And you don't really realize how dug in you are in a place until you try to dig out. So uh, we're still digging out. My wife is back in Tennessee trying to empty out the house that we filled up over 17 years. That's quite a job. I do not envy her. <laughs> I miss her, but I don't envy her. Later on, you're going to be playing some uh, live music for us, and obviously, so I'm guessing your house contains a fine range of various instruments. Well, it did. Um, mm. I've sold almost all of them. Oh. Well, except except for one that's still back in Tennessee. And the ones that I took over here, one and two at a time. Um, so I have a, a small collection Okay. The best stuff is here in Cardiff. In a nutshell, and you play a range of instruments. What 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 do you play? I, I mainly play well. fretted instruments. Mm -hmm. If it if it's not fretted, and especially if you have to use a bow on it, that's where I draw the line. But um, no, I play guitar. I started off with guitar, with classical guitar actually, which I don't play much of anymore. Uh, and I've moved to a lot of double stringed instruments. You know, starting from the mandolin. Mm. But that thing's too small. So I have a lot of instruments that are set up like mandolins, except they're the size of a guitar, usually with a, a round, rounded body rather than a wasted body. What I mean, I mean, guitars have, a, have shoulders, they have hips, and they have that tight little waist. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes them so sexy. Okay. Um, and you're holding your citron in your hand now. So the citron that, I'm, that, I, that I have here mm. just uh, has a, a rounded body or a teardrop-shaped body mm. um, with uh, an arch top on it and a floating bridge like a, a jazz guitar. And it sounds about like this. 
So it's got a big range. Wow, you found, found the last note in the whole thing. That was it. That's where it all ends. Um, when, when you were playing there, <laughs> when you were playing, then uh, earlier on, you were saying about your, your love of. Uh, when I think you said you were seven years old. You discovered uh, suspended. No, chord. no, seventh grade. Uh, seventh, seventh grade. grade in, sorry, in yeah. America's about yeah. well, uh, thirteen. So, so I mean, um, I've always loved harmony. I've always yeah. loved. Um, um, I've always had a pretty good ear. So mm. I started guitar lessons when I was nine, mm. and uh, my parents made me practice twenty minutes a day, mm. which was that was the chore part. So I had my book you know with the notes on the page and I would practice that you know and that stuff was boring and then I would take the um, the Beatles records that were just coming out and I'd figure out where the chords were mm. just just me and the record you know no no dots no no pages that was fun yeah great way to learn isn't yeah. It? yeah and I, I figured out all these kind of ad hoc ways of referring to chord changes like the chord that's five frets up from the chord that's the beginning chord of the song mm. you know in that way i kind of reinvented harmony right uh, okay and one of the things that i thought was really cool was you had a chord right you have your your triad you know your one your three your five and that's what makes up a chord but then, if you have a note that's that's just one note out of the triad, out of, out of the triad, right? I thought that's a cool chord, and it, it it creates tension, and then it resolves. So just sitting there in class, I'm thinking, oh. I just discovered suspensions. That's what it's called. Those yeah. notes that are just one note out of the chord, and they. They bend toward resolution. I thought suspensions are the past, the present, and the future. There's a couple of musicians who are, I don't know what's going through my head, but I'm hearing you, getting your enthusiasm and your kind of uh, in, uh, strong sense of musicality and finding things which are unusual. Nick Drake would be one, and his idea of kind of finding these odd chords and creating yeah. his own kind of mindset of chords. And to a certain extent, the way you play reminds me of a guy called Bruce Coburn. I don't know much Bruce oh, yeah, Coburn, but just really kind yeah. of exquisite kind of. Uh, finger techniques. Um, well, I, I've also kind of directly and indirectly been influenced by the British guitarists, people like Martin Simpson, um, Nick Jones. <coughs> Nick Drake uh, was sort of a, you know, in his own world a little bit. Yeah, but he yeah. also used a lot of open tunings. Yes. Joni Mitchell did that too. You mm. know, she sort of discovered it mm. on her own. But there's a British school of guitar playing that has to do with open tunings and so when I started I I, I got I, I always I played classical guitar so I was always very snooty about altered tunings I thought that's cheating right? yeah as classical guitarists tend to do mm. and then one day I found an old Gibson 1913 um, blackface mandola in a pawn shop this is back before eBay when good stuff could still be found sort of on the street and here was a 1913 Gibson Mandola with a broken neck, and I got it fixed up for, you know, $200 or something, mm. and tuned it open, because it seemed like the, 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 the easiest way, and so I, I let myself cheat on a Mandola as opposed to a guitar. 
and that thing just barked its head off. So you'd go into a school gymnasium and you'd have, you know, 600 kids in front of you. And you really had to, you know, really put the energy out there yeah. to, to hold them. You could play an old time tune on that thing with that open tuning and the drones going and it would fill the whole gym. You know, it was fantastic. Um, so that just kind of turned my head a little bit as far as open tunings. Um, then I got a 10-string citron by this fella up in Hexham, Northumberland, mm -hmm. by the name of Stefan Sobel, who's kind of reinvented the citron for contemporary bands. He's made instruments for the Battlefield Band, for Boys Little Loch, for um, all the cats, you know, um, Martin Simpson, Andy Irvin, those guys. And uh, I, found, I found one of, a friend of mine had one of his, and I thought, this is a mandola plus, because it has an extra high string, so you have much, you know, more range. You can mm -hmm. really wail on it, you know. You can also, um, you know, do really sensitive accompaniments for songs and all kinds of stuff. Well, you've got the Saturn with you um, uh, for for this uh, uh, podcast, but maybe in other um, future editions, maybe there'll be other instruments be, being oh, played. Sure. But uh, did you want to play your first piece now, maybe? And oh, can, sure. Let me chat about storytelling a bit more, yeah? Well, this is a story song okay. uh, from the pen of the wonderful English um, nonsense poet, uh, adventurer, artist and uh, all-around crazy person of the 19th century, Edward Lear, who wrote all kinds of well-known nonsense songs, including this one, The Owl and the Pussycat. And it's a story of the, um, the happy love affair between an owl and a cat. Um, never mind that they were different species. Uh, it seemed to work out. And it's been popular with uh, generations of particularly British youngsters, apparently there have been other tunes and people have sung this before. But when I just arrived in this country, I heard them reciting it on the BBC and I thought, you know, in my innocence, um, thought, that really would make a nice song. It needs a tune. So, this was like three in the morning, I woke up and said, there's no time like the present, I can't sleep, let's sing. So I took out the iPhone and sang the song, basically sang the tune until I got it right. And it goes like this. Oh, the owl and the pussycat went to sea in a beautiful pea-green boat. They took some honey and plenty of money wrapped up in a five-pound note. The owl looked up at the stars above and sang to a small guitar. Oh, lovely pussy, oh, pussy, my love. What a beautiful pussy you are, you are, you are. What a beautiful pussy you are. Said pussy to the owl, you elegant fowl, how charmingly sweet you sing. Oh, let us be married too long, we have tarried, but what shall we do for a ring? They sailed away for a year and a day to the man where the bong tree grows. 
And there in the wood a piggywig stood With a ring at the end of his nose His nose, his nose With a ring at the end of his nose Pig, are you willing to sell for a shilling your ring? Said the piggy, I will. So they took it away and were married next day by the turkey who lived on the hill. They dined on mince and slices of quince that they ate with a runcible spoon. And there in hand in the edge of the sand, they danced by the light of the moon, the moon, the moon. They danced by the light of the moon. Pussycat went to sea in a beautiful pea-green boat. They took some honey and plenty of money wrapped up in a five-pound note. The owl looked up at the stars above and sang to a small guitar. Oh, lovely pussy, oh, pussy, my love. What a beautiful pussy you are, you are, you are. What a beautiful pussy you are, you are, you are. What a beautiful pussy you are, you are, you are, what a beautiful pussy you are. Lovely um, resonance again on the end, you know, going yeah. back to your thing about the suspension and That's the... And the, the best thing. The, the the ringing the ringing notes etc. Ring out, and that's obviously why I guess you love that instrument uh, and so much. And instruments like it, yeah, yeah, instruments that have this kind of resonance and yeah. this kind of. Uh, well, when you tune something open, all the notes reinforce each other and kind of produce this lovely overtone wash that's just beautiful. I was going to ask you about uh, with with that particular piece of music. I mean, you described how you kind of wrote it, and it's a, a, a classic tail and uh you know and then you've just taken it off on a different spin and all of a sudden it's become this piece of music and you've got right. the music and it, it, it kind of works um and it's all you know like a lot of things we do in this uh, this building i guess i don't mm. know what your opinion in this is but it's the faculty of creative industries here yeah. uh, and the the kind of centrality of the narrative and that leads us of course in, into storytelling why is storytelling uh, still important and how, how does it operate as a yeah, field and, of uh, kind of creativity and why do we have a center for it here yeah um, you know, when when the advert went out for the position, apparently a local Tory MP got a hold of this and said, S a professor of storytelling, what an outrageous notion. Um, but the fact is that what the center has evolved into with storytelling is an, in another world beyond, say, just reading stories to children, which was what this MP's association was and the limits of his understanding apparently mm. um, we take the narrative through all different social dimensions uh, because we tend to organize our lives around stories um, what we are doing is a narrative what we believe is based on narratives 
<coughs> and uh, all the professions and the um, the major industries and the major uh, pursuits in life, whether it's medicine or business or the legal system or politics or uh, industry, they're all based on, on stories. Uh, so what we like to do is, is go out there and partner with some of these people in, in these different realms of action and find out what their story is, uh, interview them, uh, document their stories, mm. look at the way their stories interact with other stories. Uh, we have some big archives and repositories of digital stories from sports, from medicine, from communities uh, around ideas of social change. So that's the work of the center. Plus there's a, been a, a long-standing revival movement around the performance of stories, whether those are traditional tales, folk tales, epics, myths, or personal stories. Uh, there are different uh, venues and settings and communities in which these performance activities, storytelling as an art form, basically, um, mm. on, a, on a par with other art forms, music, drama, um, <clears throat> film. I suppose in, in this time where, you know, you, you alluded to uh, politics in this kind of time where there's all this sort of STEM-orientated education, it's all got yeah. to be scientifically mathematic, it's got to be, you know, uh, proven and everything else, and uh, it doesn't seem to actually encourage creativity and imagination and taking a few risks and well, trying things, does it? Yeah. If you take that too far, it's a worrying scenario, isn't it? It is, and, and when, when I started in this storytelling business... Uh, there was a lot more room in the schools, honestly, for creative interventions of all kinds. Uh, for artists in the schools, it was a, it was an ongoing, it was a major thread, and and you could actually make a decent living as an artist in the schools. Uh -huh. uh, there's still people doing it, but the the space for that has narrowed considerably. With the, um, it's not just uh, STEM education, which can be. If, if done right or if done imaginatively can be a very uh -huh. artistic kind of pursuit. Uh -huh. uh, the art of technology is, is a high art and that's, that's um, William Gold, our new research assistant that's sitting here on the camera. Uh, he's been hired because we've been hired as a, as a unit to document the stories around carbon and hydrogen capture technologies in South Wales. They're going into the heavy industries like Tata Steel and installing technologies to scrub the carbon, the CO2 and the carbon monoxide emissions and the hydrogen emissions from heavy industry smokestacks in order to produce clean, renewable and socially beneficial downstream products like algae and fish farms and uh, um, animal food and human food, for that matter, out of these recycled materials. So that's a that's a dramatic story, really. Uh, why mm. are the technology <clears throat> people, the the chemists, the physicists, why are they doing this? Why why do they believe in it so strongly to devote their lives to it and uh, try to produce a a better world? That's that's the oldest hero story there is. Although they wouldn't consider themselves heroes, they're just folks doing a you know an honest day's living they probably wouldn't even consider it as a story as such would not they? necessarily no. but it's no. when you move the camera out a little bit yeah. and turn it from what what is what is being done hmm. the actions being done they you turn it around you look at the people doing them and one of the definitions of a hero is that they don't tend to look at themselves as a hero they look at the action they look at the the goal and the result and the objective 
Mm. Um, and the paradox is that that tends to make them heroic in a very everyday kind of way. Yeah. And so our job is to look at the action, but also look at the people doing it. Because a story isn't a story without a protagonist, without a hero. Um, even if the hero doesn't regard himself as such or herself. I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, your, your your perception of, of, of kind of whales. Mm. You know, cause from your accent, I'm get you know. I'm you're guessing I'm not. I'm from guessing you're here. not really that local. Yeah. You know, so as they say in the south, you're not from round here, <laughs> are you, boy? You, you, um, you said about I'm not from there either, but I've spent most of my <laughs> life being not from around there. How kind of how kind of uh, culturally different is Cardiff and Wales for you? Is it was it was it what you expected? Is it kind of completely different? You know. Well, you know, I'm always being surprised. I'm being surprised by the vocabulary, by you know ordinary words that mean something totally different between America and here. Hmm. Um, things that are pronounced differently, like for example, your street crossings. You have zebra crossings, which is different on two levels. One, we call them zebras, hmm. those horses with stripes. But two, we would never dream of calling a street crossing after a zebra or zebra. Uh, then you have toucan crossings, puffin crossings, and uh, pelican crossings. Um, by the time I get to that point in the driver's manual, my eyes are crossed. I'm starting yeah. to, you know, steam is starting to pour out of my ears. What about the kind of, you know, the, this is Cardiff, you know, the capital city of Wales. Is, yeah. is, are you picking up on kind of, you know, Welshisms and huh. habits and things? Local Only stuff? what my elevator speaks to me when okay. I get in the yeah. morning. Okay, yeah. Pedwery Um few other things like Mindy Venny and Mindy Lauer who seem to me like two striving undergraduates in the creative industries you know roommates trying to make it in the big city um, it's an interesting place it's oh. interesting in that it's a very modern city and then at the same time Wales has a great regard and protectiveness for its ancient culture oh. one quick story to illustrate this yeah <laughs> if you don't mind mm -hmm. but that's what I do right yep um, the University of South Wales administration building in Trafarest, <clears throat> the suite where you go in and you talk to the executive aides, um, you walk in that building, it's a very modern building um, inside, but the outside is an old 19th century manor house. Mm. And you walk into the administrative suite, and right in front of the executive secretary's desk, there's a porthole in the floor that's kind of lit, you know, the ghostly, crepuscular sort of. Uh, incandescent light floating from up from from the floor, and I looked down there, and there was a quartz obelisk lit up in the basement beneath the floor, and a porthole to view it. So I said to the the secretary, "What on earth is that?" She said, "Oh, that was the Druid altar that the guy wow. who built this house, mm. whose name was Francis Crochets, and he was a mm. um, iron master up in Trafarest." Uh, he and his buddies were druids, or you know, druid revivalists. But they they built an altar in their basement, and they would do their druid ceremonies down there. We never knew about that until they were refurbishing the house in the '60s or something, and they knocked down a wall, and there was this quartz obelisk, and they looked it up and figured out what it was. And I I, I like to say if that was America, they'd toss it in the dumpster. If it was England. They'd take it out, rip it out, and put it in the British Museum. But here in Wales, what they do mm. is they burn build around it and light it up. Yeah. So, mm. and it's not even they don't they don't even put it where it's in the ceiling or on the you know, it's underneath the floor. 
Yeah. Very humble people, you see, Bosco. <laughs> <laughs> but it's lit up from underneath the floor, mm. which I think is a really apt metaphor for where it is in the cultural consciousness. Have, have you been into the Welsh valleys yet? But, you know, I mean, you said you've been up to Trafaris, but if you go beyond into the actual kind of run of the valleys and... Uh, well, I've beyond. driven through them. You know, yeah. I went up to visit Paul Carr where he okay. murdered. Yeah. Okay. And I've driven over the beacons and yeah. driven up to Holy, beautiful, you know? Holyhead and yeah. take the ferry. I haven't really explored them extensively. I'm, mm. I'm hoping to because it is gorgeous. Yeah. And the, but the people in the valleys tend to be a little bit different to the people from the city as well, yeah. you know, because yeah. everywhere you go is going to be an, an eye-opener for you, I think. Pretty <laughs> yeah. friendly people, though, in, ge- in general. Um, so thank you for, for uh, joining us today. Um, what I wanted to maybe, I don't know, I'll try and ask us in, in, in a way, you know, but we're, we're, this is this new podcast, Create Trim. My, yeah. my idea is it's Faculty of Creative Industry, yeah. so therefore it should be full of creative people. I would argue it, it, it largely it is. is. It largely is. They don't always meet uh, each other because they're busy in their <laughs> no, own little spheres. But they demonstrate that creativity in in, in different ways. But um, if you had a kind of message for new students, I suppose, coming to the university, you know, the first years coming in, um, in terms of kind of feeding and nourishing and hmm. the importance of having that creative spirit, yeah. you know, and how it's kind of been reflected through, through your life, would you have something to say on that? For one thing, it's a good place, and there are a lot of really good people who care a lot <clears throat> about their students and their students' education. But for another thing, it's a place that respects story. Uh, the dean said at a faculty meeting, he said, story is at the heart of everything we do here, uh, whether it's film or TV or journalism or literature or uh, Welsh drama. Um, there's a story to it. And the fact that that's recognized and valued, I think, is very powerful um, and very auspicious for people's education and for their outlook on the world. Well, Joseph, thank you very much for your time today. You're going to end with uh, another, song? another piece, yes? And would you like to introduce it? One of the things about this instrument in this open tuning is when, because uh, basically they're all, they're all G's and D's. And there are a lot of duplicate notes. You know, the du- they're either doubled or they're the octave. And when they're a little bit out, the whole um, the whole harmonic picture of the thing goes a little out of kilter. And when you when you're tuning and it gets in there, it's like oh, you can feel the whole thing settle. We ready? All right, this is a poem by E.E. Cummings called Anyone Lived in a Pretty How Town. And like a lot of Cummings poems, it's full of very carefully fractured grammar, um, which makes it hell to memorize, but it's wonderful to sing once you have. uh, The first verse goes, Anyone lived in a pretty how town with up so floating many bells down. Spring, summer, autumn, winter, he sang his didn't, he danced his did. And out there in radio land or podcast land, you can sing along with the little bridge section that goes like this. Pretty how town with up so floating many bells down. Spring.
Spring, summer, autumn, winter, he sang his din, he danced his din. Women and men, both little and small, cared for anyone, not at all. They reaped their sowing, they went, there came sun, moon, stars, rain. Children guessed, but only a few, and now they forgot as up they grew. Autumn, winter, spring, summer, let no one love him more by more. When by now and tree by leaf She laughed his joy, she cried his grief Bird by snow and stir by still Any ones, any was all to her Someone's married there, everyone's Laughed their cryings and did their dance Sleep, wake, hope, and then They said their nevers, they slept their dream Stars, rain, sun, moon And only the, only the snow can begin to explain How children are apt to forget to remember With up so floating many bells died, I guess, and no one stooped to kiss his face. Busy folk buried them side by side, little by little and was by was. Ooh. All by all and deep by deep and more by more they dreamed their sleep. No one and anyone earth Wish by spirit and if by yes Women and men both dong and ding Summer, autumn, winter, spring Reaped their sowings and went there came Sun, moon, stars, rain
Welcome to another Creatorium podcast and uh, on the show this time we're joined by Dr. Rob Smith who's uh, a well-known figure at the University of South Wales. Rob, uh, I see you looking around the place. Uh, what do you actually do here? Um, well, I teach performing arts and I teach music. I'm ahead of the performing arts course but uh, I also keep my hand in with the music teaching. Okay, and obviously um, over over many years you've been a kind of well-known figure uh, in the sort of Cardiff and South Wales um, music scene, doing a whole range of, range of different things uh, alongside what you do elsewhere, but I, obviously I, I recognise you from that. Yeah. So music plays a big key and kind of central role in your life. Yeah, well I've been a performing musician doing gigs for in Cardiff since I, more or less since I arrived, 1984, really. Oh. Um, Where did you arrive from? Well, originally I was living in London, hmm. but I'm not from London. I'm from Yorkshire. But, Yorkshire, um, yeah. Okay. But I came from I came down from London, and it was a breath of fresh air to get away from London. And I somebody gave me a job doing music for a dance company in January 1983. I did that for a bit, and then I went back to Yorkshire, and nothing was happening for me up there. So when the job came up again, I moved back to Cardiff in October 1983. And uh, I've never. I'm still here. Just very briefly, how did you how did you get into sort of lecturing? Uh, well, I was kind of brought in as a practitioner, and it, this was in Bath Spa. Actually, I was still living in Cardiff, but somebody was running a. Uh, they were running a kind of module, a course in. Uh, sound. It was called Sound and Image, so it was basically putting together. It was bringing together the art department and the and the music students, the art students and the music students, getting them to collaborate. And because I'd done a lot of stuff in theatre and dance and I'd written music for films, they thought they'd bring me in and I kind of started just doing that four hours a week. And then, and then a job came up at Bath and so I went part-time, still keeping the freelance work going and then gradually I morphed into a full-time lecturer, really. And you already liked it? in this part of the world so you found an opportunity to end up here did you yeah well i, I the only the, the downside of the bath job was the traveling and yeah. when i knew that the atrium was going to be opening up and, and mm. there was a job here i just i went for it and luckily got it the the idea behind this uh, podcast series is called creatrium and the the idea is that this is the faculty of creative industries yeah. so uh, and it's also the atrium yeah, I got that. I got that. <laughs> so, um, portmanteau yeah. words. Yep. Yeah. I just wondered, you know, how important do you think creativity is within what we do as sort of lecturers in universities and you know in the current environment that we we operate in? Well, creativity is underrespected as a as a human thing. I think unless it's kind of money making creativity, but I think in this building, it's it's the it's at the centre of everything that goes on here, really. So um, teaching the students and, and showing that we're creative as kind of, I wouldn't say role models, but the sort of lead, leading the students to value their own creativity is, is probably uh, the most important thing we're doing here. I mean, I I, I could um, I could uh, stick a fag behind my my ear now and get a cup of tea out and you know moan on about how difficult it is to within the jobs that we do to actually find time to be creative. But it's important that we do it, isn't it? Yeah, it is because uh, otherwise you start to um, you know it's it's like a muscle you have to keep using it, and yeah. if you don't keep using it, it it it, it atrophies it well withers away. So yeah, I mean also it's kind of for for me it's. Um, 
kind of reaffirming really why I'm even here and also it's cathartic if I'm doing creative stuff then I feel like I'm living and breathing sort of thing otherwise I'm not really doing very much you know that's it I mean yeah so I've always kept I've always kept a creative project going while I've been a teacher Um, just I I feel that if I stopped working and if I stopped doing gigs and if I stopped writing music I would have no right to be teaching it really I kind of lose my right to do it so but it does become more difficult to find the time to do it, doesn't finding it? time can be tricky yeah yeah, yeah. You, you've got three particular projects that you wanted to talk about um at the moment that we've, we're going to he- hear hear about which one would you like to talk about first you've also brought a couple of instruments very different instruments with you so yeah well i, th- I, th- I think maybe if we go straight into the one that i've brought the instruments in for I'm, i've been working for a couple of years on a project a songwriting project with a couple of guys from an, another local band i've never played with this band at all but they've been around for a long time i've had a similar history to the heavy quartet which is the band that i've been in the longest they're called railroad bill and these two guys are called dan nichols and chris walker and they wanted to write an album of their own songs that weren't railroad bill songs so it was about their songwriting rather than the band um and they got me in because obviously they've seen me around playing over the years when I say the years, there's about 30 of them. <laughs> um, and, the yeah, they just got me into... They, originally, they wanted me to provide some arrangements for their songs because they wanted to not be working in a skiffle context, but to broaden it out. But we quite soon, we found that I was doing a lot more than the arranging. I was kind of sitting down and helping write the songs. And so we just, well, let's make it a three-person pe- three um, songwriting team and... Now I'm a full member of the project, really. The project's called Naked Citizens, and we're just about to release an album, 13th of October, and the album's called Eight Million Stories. It's based on the old, I think it's 50s or 60s TV programme, American TV programme called Naked City, Um, and the strapline was there are eight million stories in the Naked City, and this has been just one of them. So we're looking at 12 Okay, I mean, I, I know um, Railroad Bill of, of old, and I know that kind of skiffle stuff. With it, that, but the stuff you're talking about would be uh, completely new to me, so that would be interesting to hear. Um, you play on a couple of instruments in particular. Uh, you brought a couple of instruments with you today. Yeah, they, they both feature on the album. Did yeah. you want, maybe I mean, want to talk about um, them and maybe demo what they sound like to people? Or is that possible? Or yeah, no? I can. I can demonstrate. I mean, basically, most of the work I've done on this mm. album has been as playing keyboards because we've kind of got a basic core band hmm. into the studio and a lot of the backing tracks have just been recorded live you know like old-fashioned analog recordings and then we've kind of built up the arrangements by adding brass and wind and choirs and hmm. voices various special things um on top so m- m- a lot of what i do is piano so on some of the tracks that you'll hear i'm not only am i playing some of the wind instruments but I'm also playing piano because that's you know that's how we've worked by building up things but I thought I'd start off with an unusual instrument called bass clarinet I mean everybody knows about clarinets mm. um, but not many people have heard or seen a bass clarinet I, so I people always say is that what kind of weird sax is that it's not it's a, <laughs> it's a clarinet okay but it's got a bell on the end so it means that it looks it's got that kind of curved shape that a, uh, that a sax has got um, it's a great looking instrument. Do, do, do you want to give it a little blast? Yeah, I'll do. I'll yeah? just get it. I'm just going over to the. He's going to get it out of the his box, box, people. Here we go. Well, 
here it comes. Looks like quite an old instrument, that Ron. It is, yeah, it, it is quite an old Any instrument. Any idea on the history of it at all? No. I know I bought it from a guy who used to work here. Oh, I know um, the guy you mean, yeah. probably. Rob. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. He did you a deal, no doubt. Well, it was, it, it, yeah, it was a good deal, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can't get it to play very loud, hmm. but it's got a very fruity, a rich sound. Yeah. So the so there's a bit on the there's a track on the Naked Citizens album called "Snatching Her Away," and it starts with a musical box. So it's a very kind of um, acoustic, gentle world, and this girl emerges from it and tells her story, and. Um, yeah, after the musical box, you hear the bass clarinet playing the intro and goes like this. Plot. Ooh, 
Fish, Y is for yak, Z is for zest, for life, not coming back. So that was uh, snatching her away. Yeah, Naked Citizens. The launch of the CD is in the Gate Arts Centre and it's on the 13th of October. Mm. But if you do miss the gig, the upside of that mm. is that that means the album's out so you can go and buy the album. Is it on the label? It's on Country Mile Records, yeah, which is Railroad Bills label. Okay. And they've got a website for that, no doubt. Yeah, um, Country Mile, just look it up. They've got a YouTube channel and everything. And, uh, yeah, you can buy in spillers on all the... You know, if, if, if like me, you like to have mm. an actual CD in your hand, you can buy it from spillers. Well, I love having a, a, an actual CD in my hands because there, there was a big conversation about that. I'll ask you about that since we're on it. But, um, the you know, in, in my in my mind, yeah, which is not a good place to be, but in my mind, I'm pretty sure that music's pretty well dying all around us because the more people stream this stuff, then if nobody buys anything, it's like if I was running a pie shop, you know, and nobody bought my pies, I wouldn't be able to make them anymore. And it's exactly the same with music. You know, people just stream stuff. The musicians don't make a bean. Uh, physical product means something goes back to the musicians. Uh, and otherwise, why would we do it? Well, we're not. Yeah, if we just did it for the money, we'd have probably given up a long oh, time you've ago. Got to break even, though. You can't just chuck, throw your yeah, money no, down the you drain. Can't, can you? I mean, it's cost a lot to make this album, and we might. Yeah, never it's not make, about profit. We might never make that money back, but um, we're giving mm. it a go. But you know, it's been it's getting airplay. It's getting played on the radio. Yeah. Um, Don Let's played a track from it oh, last great. Sunday on Radio Six. Brilliant. Um, it's got had a lot of local airplay, local radio people, enthusiasts are picking it up, and there's one mm. guy up in. Up in Yorkshire, I think, or the northeast, anyway, and he's just—I think he's played every track on the album. Wow, he—he um, he loves it. Um, How much of the album did you end up um, having an interest in the songwriting side of things? You said he got more involved in that. On every song. I'm oh, okay. On, I'm on every song in some form. Okay. Um, hmm. That some I, I mean, when the three of you working together, somebody brings in an idea, and the other two take up the slack and make, and we finish it together. So, on some of them, I was given a lyric. And there was no music. Hmm. On some of them, I actually oh, had, nice. I had actually had the music, and then somebody else wrote the lyrics. Hmm. 
um, and in various combinations. You know, so somebody will write a really simple song, and then we think, right, let's have a let's have a big brass section come in here, and then that would be completely different. And that music. would be you, you several times playing different instruments. No, no, because I got uh, uh, I got people I enjoy working with okay. in too. As we all did, we all brought our friends in. Yeah. The, an interesting thing about the the album that I haven't mentioned is that every song has got a different singer. Oh, and only one of them, only mm. one of the singers, is actually in the songwriting team. Oh, two of us aren't, didn't sing on the album. So I don't sing anyway. So mm. there's a EEC regulation about <laughs> that. I don't yeah. meet okay. my voice. My yeah. voice is not for public consumption. You sing through your instruments. Yeah, I do. Yeah, mm. yeah. Which is how people prefer it. Mm. Um, and uh, but yeah, every, so we've got all, lots of people from all over the place. Really, wow. a lot of local people who are big on the local scene hmm. have come in and just done one track with us how's it been for you working with railroad bill because and dan you know i don't know i've known dan of old sort of thing he's a bit of an irascible character can be a little bit quirky and a bit you know a bit outspoken well three old blokes working together um who've been playing live music in cardiff for 30 years yeah um we also we all seem to get along fairly well we all speak our minds and respect each other's opinions mm-hmm. And um, and that's probably made the the collaboration better. Actually, there must have been some there must have been some some colourful discussions along the way, surely. Well, yeah, but, I mean, we disagree on th- some things, and you know, yeah. things get recorded and then mm. dropped and mm. and and changed. But you know, that's the that's the process, and we're all committed to coll- collaboration anyway, so we're all able to get off our high horses when when we need to. But mm. we'll defend our corner. But you know. What At the end of the day, it's a collaboration, and I'm yeah. only one of them. What does Chris play, by the way, the guitarist, isn't he? Chris, well, when he plays with Railroad Bill, he's the T-Chess bass player. Okay. Um, which is like a sort of dull... Um, Dan's the front man, isn't he? Da- well, with Railroad da- Dan's, Bill. Dan, oh. they, they, they all sing in Railroad Bill, because yeah, there's okay. another guy who's mm. on the album as a guest singer called mm. Andy Bailey. Okay. Um, so they all sing in Railroad Bill, I think, mm. but they all play they all play another instrument in Railroad Bill... Um, in in railroad build, Dan actually plays the washboard, that yeah. that virtuoso um, yeah. conservatoire instrument, the washboard, and a T chest bass, which is basically all the washing equipment that you don't use on a washboard, you use on a T chest bass, like clothesline for I a string. I think they become quite expensive and uh, collectible nowadays. Uh, decent kind are. of playable, playable washboard, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, detritus when it's turned into a musical instrument seems to accrue. That's a great, great thing, really. Cultural value. You've got something of cultural value, which certainly isn't to try to sing no, your hands right now. Much smaller instrument. Yeah, this, tell us a bit about this. This is a soprano sax, which is the the baby of the common one. You can't get smaller saxes than this, mm. but this is the smallest one in common use, I think, the soprano. And it it's a, got a kind of um, creamy sound. I mean, you can make it sound like what you want, really. The reed's not on properly. It's a good job I didn't try to blow it. Um, before I did that adjustment, um, but yeah, it's got a kind of creamy sound and it's quite penetrating. It can be. Um, is it loud? It's not going to be too loud. I I don't play it loud. How, how long? How do you know how long it is? By the way, just for people on radio well, land who can't see it. Okay, it's about two foot long, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In so it's full. relatively small and for music. You can This one's curved, but you can get a straight one, which just mm. looks like a metal clarinet. When I first saw a, a soprano sax, I just thought somebody was playing a metal clarinet. And yeah. there are metal clarinets, but that wasn't one. It was a soprano. The clarinet's a straight tube, and the saxes are cones. That's the big difference. That's why they sound different. Okay. Shall I give it a go? Yeah, sure. Okay. Okay. 
a beautiful sound isn't it so yeah so I played I, I played this in a, a band called Capramame which is a, yeah. a, a Roman, it's a Romanian name it means my mother's goat and um, we were doing a, yeah we were doing um, we were doing a gig with Wirel Road Bill yeah. supporting a, a touring American act and um, Chris heard Chris heard Capramame's set and he just he just went away and wrote nearly all of this song the only, um, which is a song that's on the album it's called October Moon and it includes the sax but it also includes the two other horns from um, from Capramame which is Jenny Allen on flute and Jenny Bradley on baritone sax oh. so in the intro you just hear those instruments and then the full band come in it turns into a, a song about growing old <laughs>
have an, another project that you wanted to talk about so um, i do yeah it's yeah. another yeah uh it's wonder brass really but wonder okay. brass are a, a community band that i started al- along with a friend jess phillips hmm. from uh from Penarth, you know you know yeah. jess hmm. of old um yeah from the heavy quartet and we started we always wanted to have a big band and the only way of doing that would be to have an amateur one because you couldn't get gigs for a big band in the mid 80s so we we started a we we ran a a music workshop and we turned that workshop into a big band Mm -hmm. and then we took that idea to Pontypridd because they had money available to start projects in the valleys and we started Wonder Brass up in the valleys it started under a different name and it started in 1992. So our 25th anniversary was in 2007. So we started a project then, hmm. and this is last year, um, where we were commemorating and documenting and archiving the band's 25-year history. And that comes to a head the week after the Naked Citizens on the 20th oh, of right. October in the okay. gate again. Yeah, it's um, a lovely venue. Great we're, venue. Per- we're performing music mm. that we've 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 created with a couple of guest hmm. musicians and composers the band has created a a brand new three sets of music working with different composers wow. i'm one of the composers hmm. the other two are claude and claude depper and who who is a guy who was inspirational at the beginning when we were trying to create this idea of a community music big band and he came and said yeah of course you can do it you do it like this and <laughs> he was really useful in setting up the band as a, going back to 1990 we've been working with him and then the other guys Nick Briggs who's now a professional musician in London but he actually came through the band so he came to the band as a 15 year old and stayed while well, he did his A levels and yeah. then he did his degree in Cardiff and then he went over to Berlin and worked there and now he's um, he's quite in demand session musician in London so he's come back and he's written four new Scar tunes with the band. We don't play that often as Wonder Brass, so do you? I don't think. Yeah, we do. We play yeah? a lot. Still we do. playing a lot. Yeah, okay. but we don't always play in Cardiff, so yeah. people think we're not that active. But hmm. actually, Wonder Brass has been ferociously busy over the summer. We do a lot of um, community events. Yeah. And you wouldn't necessarily see us build as a separate as, as a gig. I think you played at the Eisteddfod, did you? We did. Yeah, yeah we did a big thing at the Eisteddfod where yeah. we collaborated with Griff Reese as well at yeah. the Eisteddfod. We're on his latest single, in fact. Wow. Yeah. Just throws that in casually. Yeah. <laughs> um sounds to me like the kind of thing um are you are you capturing this recording it live? Are you streaming it live? Is it gonna be rebroadcast or anything? I think we'll we'll, we'll be videoing it and mm. it's gonna be available because everything we've been doing in the last year has been archived for the for the project. The project that we've been running is funded by the Heritage Lottery Fund. Okay. And it's it's all about documenting the band's 25 year history mm. so if you wanted to make your own community band hopefully all the in, all the information that you need to do it might be in there but more to the point it's people's experiences what they've got out being in the band i mean we've we've got people who haven't played for years but they've got an instrument somewhere in the house and they mm. they they see us they ask if they can join we say 
yeah come along to rehearsals and we've got people back onto stages where they haven't been maybe since they were teenagers do you have to be of a certain standard it's like an audition process or something or no there's no audition but it's kind of self-selecting if you can't play the tunes then you will when you can play the tunes and you've been in the band for around six months because it takes that long oh. then and if you can play them properly then you're in you're in the performing band if people can't make that they tend to leave of their own accord or yeah. Or just give it longer and stick around longer. Some people really not that interested in performing. They just like playing every week and they just come along to rehearsals. I mean, the thing which is close to my heart, as you probably know, is you know, sort of community and, you know, in my, in, my, in my case, community radio. But the idea of the um, sensible interaction between us in academia and universities and people in the community. And this should, for me, in, in, again, in my, in my utopian dream world, would be uh, a meeting place uh, and a hub. You know, I mean, yeah, some, yeah. somewhere like the atrium uh, and the University of South Wales, you know, right here, bang in the middle of Cardiff, is to bring people in from the community, integrate with them and work with them to enrich, you know, yeah. society, really. And but that's that, a grand dream. That's kind of what we should be doing. I well, think. that that is what we've been doing, actually, hmm. because um, the, the university has been a, almost a, a partner great they've matched funded they've given funding in kind really they've let us use rehearsal spaces they've mm. let us use I was wondering where you recording yeah. studios yeah. so the documentation the the records that are going to come out of the project that we've that we're just finishing now have all been recorded at the atrium sometimes by students sometimes by staff mm. so the the atrium and the fci that's the faculty of creative industries hence the creatrium yeah they, they have been uh, hugely involved in this really and the, and and it's part of my research as well. My PhD was in uh, writing music for Wonderbrass, and it was it's been parts of that have been published in the United States as a sort of way of keeping large scale jazz going in a collective way rather than in a commercial way by people working together, and and that and then you look at the health benefits of being involved and participating in music. They're kind of proven really. Um, the well-being benefits so it's it's got quite a lot of impact and the 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 university's a partner in that really great um which is good to hear um yeah. were we going to play a track at this point or is that of the other project by the way I'm gonna, both I, both the tracks are from the previous uh, project oh okay okay yeah. i haven't okay. got anything from wonder oh I can, right i can send something if you could yeah that'd be good okay we, we'll edit that bit out of course okay um so i don't know which one but i can send a track by one yeah Bruce. that'd be good okay because uh, one the time I um, most recent time I saw Wonder Brass was at um, Hamish Fife's uh, Professor Hamish Fife's leaving do at Norwegian Church. Yeah, I think Yori Haugen sat in for a gig and did, drummer yeah. did you a fantastic. Yori. Yeah, he's a fantastic uh, uh, musician, I think as well. Really kind of intuitive drummer, you know. Yeah, we have three drummers actually, mm. and he's one of them because um, they're, they're all so busy. They're all really good, and they're all busy. So we've got three as backup. The other, the other two being Mark O'Connor, amazing. He's everywhere on the Cardiff, well, Wales jazz scene hmm. and beyond. And um, Gareth Davis, who's a, a rock drummer, but he's very versatile and he can play with us. Yeah, I, um, I, I knew Yuri as a student, and I was kind of just, uh, I don't, I don't think he was that rehearsed up, and he kind of just played his way through it, but did did so brilliantly. And it was a great night. Um, I'm surprised you haven't offered Hamish a regular slot as a singer after his performance. Actually, well, yeah, but, yeah, we 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 don't work with singers usually, Wonder Brass, but you know, and also the, the the song he sang that night was not really our style. Not quite, not quite. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so we'll play. We'll put some Wonder Brass in there. It'd be nice to end with it. You know, end with the piece of music. What's your third project you want to talk about? My third project, and this is the last one I'll talk about, uh, is a musical that I'm writing. Um, so, and this is for this is for the students. So uh, mm. we're trying this experiment. It's a it's a bit of an experiment. Can we produce an in-house musical from scratch? So I've brought um, I brought my own writer in who, have, who I'm working with, Jenny Allen, and she's written the story and she's writing the lyrics. Some lyrics have been contributed by other people, including Dan Nichols, actually Dan mm. again. Um, but she's written the the bulk of it and and I'm writing all the music and so essentially it's like nine songs what's the what's the general storyline well you know without giving it all away it's based it's based on a Greek myth yeah the the the, of Dido and Aeneas and we're calling it Dido and who and the idea is Aeneas was a Trojan who managed to survive the end of the Trojan war because at the end of wars in ancient times, they tended to just kill all the males and um, make off with all the females. Um, but he managed to survive that and escape. And then he, the gods told him that his destiny was to found a new Troy. And he tried a few so he, with his parents who also survived. So they, they sailed around the Mediterranean looking for a place and he ends up leaving his parents because they think they've found it and he's not sure. So he leaves them and he ends up being washed up on the north coast of Africa in a place called Carthage, and which is run by a queen called Dido. And he, 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 he and Dido kind of fall in love with each other, which is great for them, but the gods aren't pleased because they... they his destiny is to go off and found the new Troy. So they don't want him hanging around. So they, they get these three witches to intervene and, and so uh, discontent and he ends up leaving and Dido ends up very sad. We've changed the story because we've taken the idea that this guy's a refugee and we've set it nearer to home, let's say. And, um, and this guy's, this guy's an, he's an, immigrant kind of uh figure but he's very talented and he's very skillful but he's a kind of outsider because the, the will it's setting times where do you remember in 2016 when there were those vans going around during the election saying immigrants go home you're not welcome here in around london so i've kind of set it during that period so okay. whilst he whilst him and dido are attracted to each other and want to do work together because he's it's a musical so he's he he makes up his own songs and she hears his singing and she loves his singing um obviously the forces around them are conspiring to make the diff, to make a different outcome i'm struggling as a songwriter to think how would i write lyrics for this well luckily i didn't have to but right. i've got yeah. i've got i've got some good lyrics wow. lyricists working what a on subject it. to be challenged yeah. to write about though but yeah it? i mean you know and what we're trying to do with the it's music theater it's not just songwriting yeah so the songs are at the heart of it hmm. and hopefully people will go away remembering a couple of them yeah but but also it's telling a story and it's it's a it's just it's not just music and it's not just a play it's it's like a musical dramatic structure so things happen during the songs the songs don't just yeah. the the play doesn't stop and we have a song. No, no. The songs are the play really. So yeah. the the drama has to happen through the songs. Yeah. 
I mean, that's what I'm kind of hinting at really is, you know, uh, obviously, the, you know, within the lyrics, the storyline needs to, um, you know, be, be integral and continuous to yeah. what's happening around it yeah. as well, which is quite a challenge. And that's that's kind of down to Jenny's planning of, mm. of of which bit of the story this song covers and where does it where does it start and where does it end and mm. how do we get from here to here and what needs to happen. And that's, you know, that's still a work in progress, obviously. Where, what's the plan for that in terms of timescales and where where would it be likely you know to be performed i guess here we're going to be theater? performing it yeah down yeah. in the theater on yeah. the on the ground floor mm. in the atrium building on adam street and the performances will be on thursday and friday the 8th and 9th of november wow okay so it's all going to happen it's all going to happen yeah the the sh- the, there's no backing out now. I was expecting you to say some date way way in the future. No, no, no. Yeah. It's that soon. It's wow. that soon. But you know, shows shows are put together like that. Small scale theatre is put together like that. And this is obviously, I guess, involving some of your performing arts students, or quite a number of them, I suppose. Uh, performing arts students, drama and theatre and drama students, okay. and some uh, performance and media students. Mm-hmm. And there may be some mediated aspects to the show as well i'm not okay. giving too much away no. um and also we're hoping to get some music students and staff involved as well as performers so going back to the theme of the creator and podcast um that seems to be that that personifies exactly what the message is of of, of of this um podcast itself really there you are working creatively with students you know working with this uh, kind of narrative structure involving and collaborating with as many different students as possible and and you know making a performance that kind of matters and involves people that's exactly it yeah it's about bringing in people to bringing in people from the outside so they get students get contact with people who are working out there as well and can see where their careers might go and you know what kind of work they might be doing when they leave but also yeah bringing people in to um to to bring in new ideas to the place and to and to get creativity going which again comes back to the point we made earlier about integration between you know universities and you know the kind of university world and the outside world because there's only a sheet of glass between us really isn't there yeah and a lot and a big height in from this room yeah a bit of a jump from here but (laughs) the idea is good well um dr rob smith good luck with all of that and thanks very much for coming in thank you
so welcome along once again to the Creatrium podcast coming from the uh, studios at the University of South Wales at the Atrium, hence the name. And for this uh, particular edition of Creatrium, we're joined by Dewi Griffiths. So Dewi, what is it exactly that you do? Well, I started off being a Pembrokeshire boy and uh, always wanted to work in movies. So uh, when I was a little kid, I'd, uh, I was an extra on the film set and I uh, fell in love with it and uh, was always taking photographs and writing stories. So my little brain, the only thing I could ever do in my life is to tell stories and make movies. So that's what I decided to do. So I came to uh, the university here, but uh, when it was known as the Polytechnic Wales up in uh, up in Treforest and uh, did communication studies, which... Uh, so did I. Really? Yeah. Did you? Yeah. Blimey, were you there in the days I, of John Hartley and people? I think I might have been a bit later. I graduated in 96. Oh, right, yeah. Because John's travelled the world now. He's done. He's back in there Cardiff. There were some amazing people there, weren't there? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. So what, what I learned was uh, far more than what I would have done if I'd gone on to a straight film course, because you did semiotics, mm. semantics. But the stuff that really got me interested outside of the film stuff mm. was everything to do with story theory, things yeah. like that. So that, that was kind of me. But um, you, 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 at, at the university, it's film stuff that you kind of predominantly teach. Yes, indeed. Yeah, uh, what I did after leaving the poly was um, because uh, that was really fundamental to me getting into the f- television industry and later the film industry. Mm. Um, I was a very good editor, and uh, we had a, a scheme which was uh, run by HTV, who were ITV locally at the time. And uh, I was the runner-up student film editor of the year. So that got me into the industry. Uh, got kicked around an awful lot because um, uh, the first company I worked for went bust and I didn't have a union ticket, so I had to keep on working and eventually got into film production, film television production department as an assistant director, location manager occasionally, and worked in Wales uh, for some of the best Welsh filmmakers of the 80s, like uh, Carl Francis and uh, Alan Clayton, Paul Turner, people like that, you know, who've, you know, very respected, respected guys, and uh, then went up to London to work, and then suddenly my career took off, and I was working on national, then international TV, and then on feature films all over the world, really. I worked on four continents since. I counted them at once, actually, and it was well over 150. Um, you know, different shows or different uh, wow. films. So yeah. that's a, a show being maybe 20 episodes or 13 yeah. episodes or however many. So, uh, so then what I did was I made my own films, uh. So I went right the way through the entire system and fell back into education. I did a bit of uh, work at the University of Glamorgan running the MA film there, but then I got headhunted by the head of the American Film Institute and the head of the University of Southern California Film School to go and work for them. So that was, you cannot get more top top uh, rate than that. Those mm. guys are, you know, the people who feed Hollywood, they are rated the best in the world, so I had to really be good at what I did. So I worked out there in the Middle East for them for four years or so, until the film school came to an end there, and now I'm back here at uh, at uh, the University of South Wales, as it is now, yeah. So I head up, uh, I headed up initially MA in film, yeah. uh, film producing rather, and uh, currently I'm uh, running the producing side of uh, BA Film, and come next... Um, Come next summer, summer nineteen. Okay, uh, I'll be doing the MA in uh, in film once again. Gonna try and go back to a couple of things you said. I wanted to ask you about a couple of things. Mm. So when you when you first got into kind of the film industry, sort of per se, how old were you? Straight out of college, I was twenty twenty one. Yeah, okay, yeah, which 21. is perfect because what, what I want to talk to you about. So this is the Creatrium, yeah. This this mm. podcast. So it's the Faculty of Creative Industries. We're based at the Atrium, yeah. So it's creatrium. So our students, when they graduate, they're, they're you know obviously they're, they're the same age. They're like twenty twenty one. Indeed. Um, how do you feel looking back in it? How were you sort of um, 
received, if you like, by the industry as a 20 to 21 year old? Were you just doing all the, you know, the rubbishy stuff that nobody wanted to do? Did they kind of, did, did, did they give you a break? How, 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 how was it for you at that time? It's, it's as it is now. It's like what you do is, as a student, you're climbing a ladder, climbing, 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 trying to get as good as you can so you can get to the bottom of the pyramid. That's <laughs> where you're getting to, is yeah. the very, very bottom. That's where yeah. you're aiming to be. And anybody who spent any time in uh, the film industry, like they have in whatever industry you have, you start off at the bottom, you start off sweeping the floors or whatever you have to do, mm. and you work your way up. Uh, and if you if if you have aptitude, if you have intelligence, if you have skill, and sometimes talent as well helps, uh, you get taken on board and uh, you continue. And that's what I did. I was very very lucky. You know, the first job I had, mm. the company went bust. I learned so much about the industry from that experience because there was nothing that I'd done. I was driving the vans and uh, syncing up the footage and things like that. Mm. Uh, but I learned so much about it. Uh, from that experience that uh, when I became a runner uh, I was I had the knowledge from editing I had the knowledge of how business worked a little bit more and every job I did I learned something more and I worked for some incredible people there's one guy who phoned me up on a Friday night and said Dewey are making a film turn up on Monday at this school and he'd never made a home video before mm. uh, and you know never done anything like photography even but wanted to make films and he was a self-made millionaire selling or rather renting videotapes back in the 1980s and this guy was an absolute genius and I learned so much from him he's now moved from Malibu because uh, he, he feels the cold a little bit at night he's moved to Bel Air he's a multi-multi-millionaire oh man uh, he's uh, I I I, I really worship the guy he's absolutely fantastic he's a former bread van driver originally from Manchester wow. and he and his partner who's another bread van driver they made mm. their own millions mm. and when they they brought me on board as uh, one of the more sensible people to help make their first film which is called Good Night God Bless it was uh, a learning experience for everybody but you know what I learned from those people was just incredible because the way they looked at films was it was uh, uh, it wasn't like you would in the film schools uh, traditionally saying you know okay this is uh, this is the creativity of it this is the, the style of it and this is the intent it was okay you make a film it's like selling uh, it's like selling shirts at Blackwood Market which is how he was always used to put it he said you spend a bit of money you get your shirts you sell your shirt yeah. you get money back you keep a little bit of money but the rest of the money goes into buying more shirts and he, that's how he built his international business you know mm. the, the, this guy is really really good I, I keep on meeting him in in Cannes okay. and we have a chat and he's always wearing his Man United shirt because usually back in those days at least Man United are always in the cup finals which they're not at the moment which yeah, I think is yeah. a cause of pain to many of us um, so in terms of I don't know where, how, how you'd answer this I don't actually know how I'd, I'd answer this if I asked anyone but um it, it appears to me because I'm obviously I, I I'm a lecturer here uh, as well in, in what I do. It just appears to me as, for whatever reason, and this is not directed at the students. This is more directed at kind of societal pressures, I suppose, on us and the students. But it seems to me like a lot of the times these days, um, we live in more of a kind of client culture based academic system these days, where the expectations are not exactly maybe what they have been in the past. I wondered how you, how you kind of get your message across to students and how receptive they are of those kind of messages where you talked about the kind of pragmatic way of getting in there, getting your hands dirty, getting stuck in and, and growing from there. How much uh, students buy into that at the moment and how much they want it on a plate, you know? That's really, really interesting. Uh, I, I, I do agree with you. Um, what I've found 
um, in my first couple of years back here is that I've been dealing with final year students primarily, sometimes second year students as well. And by that stage already, uh, they've um, they're not really haven't really got their eye on the ball when it comes to uh, working in uh, an industry standard way. Which is the reason for the industry standard way is because it works. It's stuff that people have done for a century. It's the way things are done in the industry. If you understand how a set is run, how a, how a budget is constructed, how a schedule is put together, uh, how to basically walk onto a pl- into a place and work it out in terms of lighting, in terms of where the camera can be, in terms of problems with sound, mm. uh, all of that stuff. Uh, if you can do that, you are ahead of the game. Uh, students really are not taught that very much. Um, so when I get them in the second or third year already, there's a, a little bit, you know, a little bit of catching up to do. And uh, sometimes some students don't catch that up. What I'm finding this year, as in this academic year, is that I'm teaching the first years and they get it. They really get it. They get it from an early stage. So all of that stuff goes together in their in their heads when it comes to the creativity of it and what they're trying to do and the ideas behind it. Yeah. And then the how to do it is in there as well. And uh, I, I've been really impressed with this year's first-year students, to be well, honest. Well, I, I was really impressed with some of your students who I work with, as you know, because I worked on a music project with them. And uh, I don't know, whether, I'm guessing they're graduating now, uh, this this summer coming, those particular That's right, uh, yeah. three or four students. But mm. they, they were they were a joy to work with, you know. Um, and they, they really wanted to uh, be organized and professional and, and, and find out, for, if you like, the client, what the client's needs were as far as possible to... To deliver that, so there are some there are some excellent students, but um, I think some students, and it's quite understandable. I mean, some human beings, I suppose, struggle with the idea of doing something for nothing and getting in there and uh, you know trying to break your way into the industry without get without getting an immediate return. That's what I did to get into 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 radio, and I suppose to some extent you did some stuff early on, which maybe you wouldn't have you know wouldn't have been top of your list, but it's got you through it, hasn't it? Oh, completely, yeah, completely. And sometimes it comes back to roost. Um, one of the things I did when I was looking for work after the film editing company went bust yeah. was um, I went I, found, I would go around South Wales and find films and I found one which was shooting which was very interesting to me because I'm a horror freak and uh, the the film was a horror, horror British horror film and uh, I'd heard of the director and I was really keen to be there so I did in my opinion, everything right. I went and asked if I could hang out, and they said yes. So I helped the caterers in the morning with the washing up. I helped uh, move things around the set. I hung out on set. I maybe spoke a little, couple of times too many, but you know, I, I was sort of uh, trying to be helpful to people about things, mm. uh, and I was trying really, really hard. And uh, generally, went very well. Everybody said, "Great, great, nice to meet you. See, see you tomorrow." So I went home. This is in the days before mobile phones, of course. Got a telephone call. Don't come back. I was, well, what, 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 why? And they, and they said, well, I don't know exactly what you've done, but you've set the producer, don't come back. And I was heartbroken. I was really heartbroken because I, I thought, well, what have I actually done? And I couldn't put my finger on anything that I'd done, which was incorrect, impolite, unhelpful. I scratched my head and I couldn't work it out, but of course I didn't go back. Um, a few months later, I was working for um, uh, the brother of the guy who ran the set, so uh, so he he came to know me and he continued to hire me after that. So weirdly enough, the guy who's running the set hired me in the future. But the year later, this is where it came home to roost, a year later I was working on a film for Disney. And again, films were few and far between, and I was working on this thing and working my guts out. 
and there was a production meeting which involved some of the Disney executives. Everybody was there, and I was the runner, so I was going to take notes, and I was there taking notes, and the production designer stood up and says, before the meeting starts, uh, I want to make an apology. About a year ago, I was producing a film, and Dowie came in to help us. I didn't know who he was, so I didn't really want him around, and I realised that was a big mistake. Dowie, I'm sorry, and I'm glad you're doing well. And he sat down, and I was in front of everybody, and I had no idea that this was the same guy. <laughs> and he was uh, apologising to me in front of a lot of people. And I, I you know, I was, that was, uh, <laughs> that was like a vindication of it. And I knew that, that what I was doing was, was the right thing. Of course, everybody makes mistakes, but, you know, I was trying, working yeah. and working and working. And you have to. Uh, mm. You have to do that because people making films these days, more than TV, but making films are usually under-budgeted, under huge pressure. And if you can help them out, uh, the ones who succeed will come back and make more for bigger budgets and for paying budgets, and they will come back to people that they know. Yeah. They don't want to go back and hire people, try somebody new out all of the time because that can lead to so many problems. They try to stay with people that they know. Mm. So if you're one of those people that they know and you work very, very hard and you do your best at what you do, uh, you're going to succeed. And as a runner or, or anything at, at, at this lower level, yeah. uh, there's no expectation that you know too much. So as long as you learn what, you, what you're supposed to be doing, mm. uh, as long as you're, you know, fairly commonsensical about things, you can succeed. And of course, in, in, in the other, yeah, I suppose it's slightly the other side of that um, argument. It's the, I suppose, the reverse in a way, is that we think about, you know, you've traveled all around the world, you've worked all around the world, you've worked with these big companies and, and, and had an amazing career. But in, in Wales, you know, it's, it's probably the same within pretty well any branch of the media industry. Wales is a pretty small place when you actually stop and think about it. And what you can't do, as a Welsh person working in the media industry in Wales, in my in my experience, you can't really uh, you can't really afford to alienate people because everyone kind of knows each other, and that comes back to bite you, doesn't it? Oh, definitely, yeah, definitely. I've worked very hard always not to be alienate people, but sometimes you know there are there are groups of people I don't want to work with mm. at the same thing. So that's a that's a human reaction. Back to what I was saying just now, you know, people want to work with people that they know, not because necessarily they're your friends, but they trust you for what you do and respect you for what you do. One of the nicest compliments I ever had was I was working on a, a massive Merchant Ivory film. In today's money, it's probably forty million pounds and more, massive thing. And uh, I was out for a drink with uh, the riggers. Uh, who were known as stags, stagehands, because they were all Pinewood guys. So these guys are all Cockneys in it, you know what I mean, all that. One of the first things I had to learn was I had to learn to speak Cockney and I had to learn to speak North Walian. That Those were key skills as well. Yes. So I had to speak Cockney, okay. I speak like that, yeah, and understand people from Canadonia. But also I had to speak Cockney, didn't I, you know what I mean, and all that. And you had to understand it, otherwise you was brand bread, mate. You was brand bread, you know what I mean? So... You had to know that. But anyway, I was uh, having a pint with these guys, and uh, one of them was saying that the most recent picture he'd worked on was the next Alien, and he'd worked on this picture, and Judge Dredd, and all those. And I'm going, wow, 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 I'd love to work on those. And he said to me, well, the thing is, mate, it's like this. I got those jobs because my governor got those jobs. You'll get those jobs because you're damn good at yours. Hmm. That's one of the nicest compliments I've ever had from anybody. You know, uh, you, you go, people look at you if you do your job they respect you. It's like when I run a set in Hollywood. Hmm. Uh, I ran a set on, on Mortal Kombat, uh, which was a huge movie, you know, and uh, I was uh, the Prince Goro AD, the four-armed creature AD, because I knew the effects guys, who were the people I worked with uh, previously in Romania and things like that, and these were the top guys in the world. They still are. Hmm. Um, and I'm running a set there, and uh, it doesn't bother anybody that I'm a Brit, because the director's a Brit. And it's like, well, the assistant director's a Brit. Well, it's okay. You know, and... Uh, 
I was petrified. Crew of 150 people were going to do a fight between um, an animatronic uh, human creature and a very difficult uh, <laughs> Southeast Asian actor. So, you know, how are we going to do this? And um, I just said, OK, I'm going to do what I always do. And we did it. You know, it, it, what I'd been taught initially on film sets in Wales was transferable to film sets in Britain, was transferable to film sets anywhere in the world. And that's where, I, that's where I go back to what I'm trying to teach the students, which is how things are done. If things are done mm. in a correct way, obviously you refine as you go. But if you've got that understanding and that knowledge, everything, the world opens up to you. Talking about, you've mentioned it a couple of times, a couple of things which are kind of buzzwords to me, really. One, one is something which runs as a theme, really, through everything we do at the atrium at the University of South Wales, which is um, to do with storytelling. Is it kind of a theme which runs through it? And the other thing you talked about was, was creativity. So sometimes uh, it's quite difficult, you know, to get that message across to people about how you can be creative uh, with a storyline, how can you interpret it, and how can you take it in different directions. Um, have, you, have you had that kind of issue over the years, maybe uh, in your working experience, perhaps, where you've struggled with a director or a senior producer or whatever to interpret the creativity and be on the same page? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um the thing about film is that uh, you tend to have people working for quite a long time to get this uh, script, which is the basis of it, to the best possible state it can be. Mm. So most often, film scripts are pretty good. However, as a new pair of eyes, you go into something, you can very often you know, ask somebody and say, well, why does this character do this because of that? And they go, oh, you know, I hadn't thought of that. That's very, very common because people are so close mm. to their work for so long. Most people always take suggestions, but what you're doing is uh, you're always suggesting hmm. uh, or pointing out uh, it's their decision. There's a so lot, of it, e lot of ego in the film industry, isn't there? Oh, huge. Everybody's you know, got an ego. The carpenters have got an ego. Yeah, yeah. yeah car uh, <laughs> this really difficult carpenter on one shoot. Yeah. He, he was threatening me because uh, he wasn't allowed to take down his set. And I said, look, mate, you're going on to another movie. I needed standing for another two weeks, but it's my set. I'm taking it down. No, you're not. Hmm. <laughs> And it's not your set. I paid for it. So if you're trying to say someone there, <laughs> have you thought about this in this storyline? You know, did you, did you, then maybe that's not always well received. Um, it, it depends on the circumstance. Hmm. It totally depends on the circumstance. Uh, you you know, as I said, on, on some films, you wouldn't say boo. On other things, you would say, you know, look, have you thought about this because of that? And they're like, yes, I have, or no, I haven't. You know, hmm. and you, you, when you've got a relationship with uh, producers and directors where that, that can happen, they respect you for it. But uh, it's, it's always their, their movie. How do you get that message across to uh, young students, 18, 19, 20-year-olds, about this idea of, you know, being creative? How, how do you sort of interpret creativity within what you do? Well, I'm definitely put to the side of uh, being pragmatic. And that's because, Steve, that I've uh, directed a lot of TV shows, I've directed a movie and uh, written a number of screenplays and written a few books, so I'm not creative, you see. <laughs> how, do, how I do it is, uh, yeah, I, 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 I try to help students who haven't got uh, initial ideas, and the way I do that is I tend to tell them, look, it's kind of simple. A story has three three phases to it, a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's what we used to teach uh, in Arabia. Uh, we used to do a, a little film, which was one of the first things we did, called The Lost and Found, mm. where somebody lost something and they had to find it. And it was entirely up to the student what they lost. Could it be something physical? Could it be something else? Uh, and at the end, they found it. But that was teaching three-act structure and how to basically set up an idea, 
develop it and pay it off. And th- those are the th- sort of things that I go back to students time after time after time after time uh, because of the way the, the faculty set up, you know, and I'm, I'm not really involved in the, in the stories from early on. So I, I just try to clarify things like that for them, for, which I, I think is generally very well received. Um, when I do write my own stuff, um, I've started off years ago with a, with a strong idea of story structure. Mm. So I used to write um, screenplays by myself, including short films, including feature length, um, many of which got you know quite considerable funding along the way and a few got made. Um, but when uh, I write with my friend, uh, which I do now, particularly with, with uh, the, late, the more recent screenplays and novels, um, we tend to concentrate an awful lot on structure. When I was in the Middle East, I worked with uh, one of the few Hollywood screenwriters who's actually hired uh, for an idea mm. and has kept on the project until it's actually produced. And in Britain uh, or Europe, a lot of people think, well, what do you mean that the writer isn't there from beginning to end? The studio, it's the studio idea is the producer either likes or comes up with an idea, hires the writer to do a draft. If they like it, they'll keep the writer on, do another draft or two or whatever. But once it comes to a point where the, uh, the script isn't going the way the producer wants or the director wants, the writer, another writer gets hired, really. But basically, so nobody's nobody's ripped off. Everybody's paid along the way. That's part of the process. I've got friends, for example, who've written 15 to 18 major motion pictures, never had a credit hmm. because they wrote a draft at some point. Yeah. Um, but uh, my my friend who worked with me in Arabia, he was one of the few people who actually came up with an idea and uh, and paid it off all the way to, all the way through. So I asked him. His name's Wayne Powers. He's a, a really great guy. I asked Wayne. I said, Wayne, how come this is the case? Why why are you the guy who uh, you know gets hired and very very seldom gets rewritten? I mean, never really. And he said, Well, it's like this. There are maybe two hundred guys who can tell a story the way I can. I'm very good at mine. But the key thing is, I understand structure. The structure for the story is always locked in, and any changes required are changes to a character, changes to a scene, changes to this, change to that. Nothing structural. Everything is structure. Mm. And I took that on board. So when we write our when we write our screenplays now, and when we write our novels now as well, uh, we're very, very, very keen to uh, follow a structure which yeah. is going to please the audience, the reader, or the viewer. Okay, so you, 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 you've, you've mentioned uh, you mentioned horror, and you've mentioned structure, and you've mentioned storyline. So that kind of is stuff that kind of runs through your veins, really. That that kind of approach, and it's whether mm. it be through film or whether it be in print or anything, anything else. Talking about the stuff in print, you've had a number of uh, books uh, published. What what kind of stuff do you generally write about then? Well, that'll be horror. <laughs> what's been it's the most totally su- horror. Um, what's successful one so far would you say and what, 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 which, or which have you maybe yeah either got the most success out of or uh, has been the most satisfying I suppose well everyone's satisfying I think uh, for somebody who hasn't got any children what people tell me is that they love all their children the same but for different reasons mm. and I think it's the same for when you're creating yeah. uh, uh, texts mm. be it a movie be it a, be it a book so, so each one is different each one's got different okay. uh, different things but all of them mm. strangely enough are very 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 autobiographical well let's talk about oh that's good so tell me because um, we don't want to give the story away we're going to talk about your up and coming book we don't okay. want to give the story away but so tell me about uh, maybe uh, a previous book and give me a, a, just a brief if it's autobiographical give me a brief outline of what that story was Okay, so to give you an idea about autobiographical, I could talk about Old Flames, which concerns uh, uh, a young English girl. So I'm not a young English girl, but it's hugely autobiographical. Mm. The idea for the story came about when I was working uh, for S4C, for Paul Turner, Oscar-nominated director. 
And Paul had me looking for locations uh, on my first job ever on the film set. I was going out looking for locations. And back in the back in that day, uh, the EU milk quotas were a huge thing. And I was looking for a, a farm which would uh, which would allow us to shoot interior and exterior and look 19th century without a huge amount of work being done to it. And I found one down near Carmarthen. Uh, I'm not going to tell you exactly where. <laughs> Because uh, when I found it, uh, it was uh, an old farmhouse. I found one of the people who owned it. Uh, it turned out that a little old lady had been born in the house. She'd lived every single day of her life there, uh, never gone away, never went to hospital, had all of her children in the house. She had about eight children, and she died in the house uh, about two years before. So the, the farm belonged to uh, about 30 people because of the way the will was split up. So uh, the farm didn't have a milk quota, so it was kind of difficult to sell, so it had been empty for some time. Time. The one of the sons took me there, uh, you know, I found him and he took me around and it was an empty old house, absolutely perfect. I took all the photographs. Director loved it. It was great. Um, we were in, it was in, in the middle of July and uh, I took the director down there and all the actors for rehearsals without the crew. This was pre-rehearsal. Mm. And after about 15 minutes, I had to go back to the hotel to get coats. Everybody was so cold. They were freezing in the house, and it was really, really cold. Uh, the day we started shooting, uh, 10 minutes in, the lead actor almost severed a finger sharpening a scythe, and there was no reason for it. Uh, the second day, the leading lady almost drowned in a pool of water, which was maybe four inches deep. Um, I knocked myself out walking along a corridor, which had the ceiling height of about six foot six, and I'm just under six feet, but I knocked my head on a beam, knocked myself out. Um, people were constantly hurting themselves and on the final day of filming there uh, we had caterers who were cockneys as I said you had to, had to speak cockney otherwise you were in trouble so we had the cockney caterers down guys of my age now no messing at all hard uh, west, west of London cockney guys and uh, they were sitting in the truck and I said jokingly hi where's my breakfast and I got a mouthful of abuse and I said w w w why are you shouting at me and they said we're not doing nothing until somebody speaks to the old woman in the S they'd seen her and the, the old woman was there and she didn't want anybody there and we were we were not welcome and we were being hurt by this ghost and that's the first time I'd, I'd come across an angry ghost same series different um different year different um different season if you like I was up in um, Tally area of uh, of uh, shall we say Carmarthenshire, uh, not so not so far from Tandelo where there's a lot of uh, forestry plantations and a lot of the areas completely forested and I was going out with a girl there and uh, met her dad who was a farmer there and one night was sitting on the porch basically out the front and he's pointing to farms in the trees which you can't see anymore and I realised there was an entire community of farms out there which had disappeared under the trees so these two ideas came together and I wrote a novel called Old Flames which is about um, a little cottage in a forestry uh, plantation which uh, a young girl buys in memory of a father who came from the village uh, which is haunted by ghosts from uh, the 19th century and, and later. Mm. So um, that was weird because uh, I had a lot of uh, J-horror influence on that uh, when that was coming out. And uh, we almost got the film off the ground. We had Kate Beckinsale and um, Michael Sheen involved before anybody had heard of Michael Sheen. Uh, the, the lady who cast it for us, cast Lord of the Rings and stuff like that. We had some mm. amazing people working with us. Um, so th that's a sort of strength of project that's, that can come together by being autobiographical, but actually writing something completely different. Okay, so let's, which is a fantastic story, by the way, um, and sets up all kinds of visual imagery in my head. I know that territory relatively well. But let's uh, talk about uh, the, the, the forthcoming book now. And I noticed you, gave me, you made me a cup of tea earlier, and I noticed it's written fabulously stylish, The Who, 
mug. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a hint towards music, which is another one of your kind of uh, passions. Yes, indeed. And that ties into the some, partially the storyline for this uh, forthcoming book. It does. the 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 way this one's autobiographical is um, based on a few things. Um, one of my uncles, uh, we had a, a conversation at Christmas time quite a few years ago, and I'd just uh, come back from uh, shooting in Canada. And uh, he said, oh, so where were you shooting in Canada? And I said, well, this little place which is not too far from Moncton and Fredericton. And he said, Moncton, that's where I disembarked. And we didn't know he'd been to Canada, and he'd been training in Canada. He was a, a glider pilot initially, went on to, fi uh, to uh, fly fighter bombers and travelled right across Canada uh, to the West Coast. So all these places that he knew, I knew, he wanted to, to, to make war, basically, or to train, and I wanted to make movies. And then he went into the uh, the Pacific and such like. But we were talking about all these things and the sort of weird parallel between uh, my life and his life and then my other family's life where they travelled the world doing stuff as well. And um, then back where I'm from, St. David's in effect, uh, more and more of my friends started coming home and I used to, used to find them. And... Um, when we last saw each other was around about the time of the Falklands War and a lot of those guys went to the Falklands I made films about it it was a, you know a, a big a big moment in my life as well but I was safe at home and they were in the Marines they were on uh, they were exorcised on the Sheffield you know um, bombed on this bombed on that uh, walked across the Falklands to fight and so on you know really 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 deep stuff and um uh, particularly one of my friends uh, I'm very close to went from the Marines to the Naval Provost, went into the police and uh, was somebody who was most calm with a gun. And uh, to calm him down, I think they then uh, decided that he should drive uh, high-speed pursuit cars. Uh, and the most lovely guy you could ever meet uh, and, and a good friend of mine. And I just realised that uh, he went to countries... Um, to, to into, into wars basically he would be dropped into place not knowing the language not knowing what was going on basically with a basic plan and had to do something which was exactly what I had to do on films I was uh, known for going to uh, difficult uh, locations like Pakistan like Romania places like that just after Ceausescu fell uh, into backwards of Canada to shoot films because I was very resilient and very pragmatic and about what I did and how I ran things and was also very good with languages so uh, these sort of ideas came together and also the time I spent running a show called Dream Team. I used to go down to football games quite a lot and uh, for one season we were at Millwall, which was absolutely uh, wonderful. It was pure entertainment uh, from beginning to end until it got to the point where it was just too dangerous to go anymore. Uh, but I used to absolutely love it. You never spoke, you just uh, just sort of a, at people. Yeah. And people would back at you, never any conversation. But it was absolutely interesting watching the whole thing going on. And you used to watch the people more than watch the match. I got to know quite a few interesting characters there as well. So all of this came together uh, about people of basically my age who have travelled the world making wars, you know, uh, not necessarily being their nature, just that's, that's the job is to do that, and how it affects them, mm. and how filming has affected me a little bit. I have memories where, you know, I had, you know, major stressful incidents like trying to stop somebody shooting somebody else on a set and things like that, uh, which, uh, you know, you could possibly say are PTSD things, because I keep on coming back to them, as I've just done now. They're, like, at the forefront of my mind, not in the bottom of my mind where they should be. And uh, basically put, put a character like myself to together uh, with uh, my friend as the key character and he takes his friends who are basically 
shall we say, Millwall fans into uh, into a foreign country to watch a game. And he's immediately aware that there's a big problem here. It's not quite sure what it is, but something bad is happening. And these guys are just idiots around him and he has to basically protect them and try to bring them home. So that's kind of the basis of this book, which is called Away Game. Okay. So the way the music comes into it is because, again, of age. Um, mm. it, the, the whole theme of the book is fatherhood. You wouldn't think that, but it is actually fatherhood when you go into it. And it's about how this guy is like a father to his friends because he's trying to look after them. And they have their own kids there who, uh, you know, are the generation I'm teaching now, students I'm teaching now. And I'm seeing, you know, the way they behave and sometimes problems that they have. So we have a kid there who's uh, very withdrawn and is a huge death metal fan. And it turns out that uh, his favourite band come from this town they happen to stop off in. Uh, so he goes out exploring and uh, finds um, some uh, very dark pagan things going on, which seem to be, uh, at his reading, is just some sort of fantasy, which the music is all about, but it's actually the music is all about a reality, a real place and a real um, uh, th thought system and things like that. So he gets drawn into this and he gets kidnapped and the guys have to save him. So that's kind What's of the, the core band of it. called? The band are called Death to Christ Children which should be a bit of a giveaway, shouldn't it? It should be a bit of a giveaway, that one. So the whole thing is, again, you know, to do with religions. You know, I've, I've rubbed shoulders. I've spent years of my life living in Muslim cultures, um, Christian cultures, and, of course, you know, there's, uh, I've got a huge interest in, in, in uh, history and mythology and paganism and stuff like that. So these sorts of ideas come through all of this. And I've written, as I said, with, uh, with my friend who we write scripts with, and he's fascinated by uh, Northern European, shall we say, Viking mythology as well. So that is okay. all we've, we've woven through it. So it's a unique little book. So what I'm really, really I mean, we're coming towards the end of the, the podcast now, but what, what I really like about what I'm finding out about you, again, what I love about doing this podcast, actually, uh, I got into radio about 30 years ago because I, I, one of the things I love is interviewing people and finding out about people. My, my focus always is a thing called a conversation. That's exactly what it is. That's what that's what I, what, I, what I kind of try and do. That's what we're doing now. But from what I'm finding about you, even though we've worked around each other for years, because I was also at Trafalgar all those years ago, mm. is uh, and we also did the same course, funny enough, but a couple of years apart. Yeah, is your um, kind of jackdaw-like ability to pick up a niche of an idea from something that happens in your life, which I kind of find fascinating. And whether you're thinking this is a film or this is a book, it kind of transcends that, which comes back to the storyline we were talking about earlier and storytelling. Mm. It's about anything else you've got a finely tuned eye and ear for stories. And I think that kind of encapsulates, to me, from what I've heard from you, uh, what you do, which I think is an amazing thing. Well, I try to bring that into the class as well, you see, because what I do... That's the beauty of you can yeah. do that, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, I do tell these stories which I think are very pointed and, very, and, and illustrate points all the time. Yeah. Uh, you know, do, every, do everybody pay attention to them? I don't know. Do everybody believe them? But I think after a little while they just go, oh my God, I, you just show me the photograph. Yes, I believe you. Mm. You know, um, there's, uh, there's all sorts of stuff I, I, I bring constantly, you know, three or four or five little anecdotes into lectures all of the time to just illustrate points. And usually you see eyes opening going, ah, oh, got it. Which is great. It's nice when that happens, isn't it? Mm. It doesn't happen all the time. But um, just to close off uh, uh, for, for, the, for this Creatorium podcast, uh, remind us again of the title of the book, uh, maybe the publisher and when it's likely to be out and about. Okay, uh, we publish all of our books through our own production company, which is called Garland Stone. 
Uh, you'll probably find them most easily through Amazon. If you put my name, Dowie Griffiths, into Amazon, you'll find, uh, by the time the podcast comes out, three books up there. The first one, which I wrote with uh, my friend John Washburn, is called Blood Eagle. And that's uh, basically, uh, I always pitch things like I pitch films. I'm sorry, I, I never get away from the film writing. Uh, so it's like Alien versus Predator, but with undead Vikings and Russian witches. Um, which, which happens around the west coast of uh, Ireland uh, in the 1960s. So that's, uh, that's an interesting one. That's, uh, that's one which is sold very well in many, many countries. Canada and, and Australia sold very well in, interestingly, uh, and the UK. That's the first one, Blood Eagle, with John Washburn. The second one is my own, uh, Old Flames, which I mentioned to you earlier, which is the ghost story set in mid-Wales with... Um, Two timelines, one being the uh, the flashback timelines where uh, Wales wasn't forested and uh, was a, was an open countryside sort of place that everybody spoke Welsh, and the contemporary one where the forests have come down and next to nobody speaks Welsh. So that's that one, old flame, um, old flames, and the final one we're talking about is away game, which is the uh, the football fans go to Finland one and discover huge things. We have many more to come. We've got uh, a good dozen screenplays which have been financed uh, to some level or developed to some level. So we're developing those all into novels now, which is what we're doing. So I'm currently working on Folk Devil which is set in uh, the centre of England in the Peak District where I did some filming. Absolutely lovely part of the world. And all around, that's all based on Peak District um, uh, things like well-dressing, etc., and paganism uh, in, in the present day and New Age travellers and uh, the clash again of uh, Christianity and paganism in that one. And uh, we're just about to write uh, Black Valley, which was uh, our magnum opus set up in the slate quarries of North Wales, which is uh, which uh, open up into the Celtic underworld and let some things out, which is going to be out at the middle of next year. Uh, Derry, there's obviously more, much, much more to come, but uh, Derry Griffiths, uh, thanks for being on the Christian Podcast. Speak to you soon. Thank you for asking me. you just heard was made using Anchor. Ever thought about making your own podcast? Anchor makes it really easy for anyone to get started. It's a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing podcasts. Best of all, it's 100% free. Sign up now at anchor.fm slash new. That's anchor.fm slash new to get started.